That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today in the show, we have a number one New York Times bestselling author. But before I introduce her, a quick word from our sponsors. Just kidding. We do not have sponsors. This is uh, 25 episodes in for us. And so while we are reaching thousands and thousands of people every single week, uh, we'd love to reach more. And we could use your help to do that. So if you have been enjoying What's the Big Idea, just go over to our episode page, whether you're on Spotify or Stitcher or Apple, and drop us a review. We would love to hear from you. And so thank you for that. And now let's get on to the show. So today on What's the Big Idea, we have Wednesday Martin. And I first heard Wednesday on Chris Ryan's podcast, and she blew me away because she has this uh, incredible ability to integrate storytelling with science. And um, so she burst onto the scene with her book, Primates of Park Avenue, which was a number one New York Times bestseller, where she was inspired by Jane Goodall and basically modeled those same research techniques to evaluate the behaviors and tendencies of Upper East Side stay-at-home moms. And it got all sorts of crazy press, and it's being turned into a, a movie and primetime TV show. And uh, she's continued kind of this exploration of women with her latest book, Untrue, which is what she came on the show to discuss. And Untrue is uh, basically all about how everything we've been taught to believe about women's sexuality, uh, infidelity, desire, you name it, is just plain wrong. And uh, she is writing this book to kind of tell stories but introduce the new science that she believes can ultimately liberate women's sexuality and women. And, uh, you know, she talks so deeply about how the social si social sciences were for so many years dominated by men. And as women started to become more prevalent in that type of research, they started to notice a much more complete picture about the sexuality of the animals and humans that they were studying because they were much more capable of empathizing with the experience of those females. And uh, she's going to go through a lot of these uh, anecdotes, latest research that will uh, hopefully really shift your understanding of female sexuality as it did for me. I love talking to her. I love this podcast. I hope you enjoy it as well. Without further ado, here is Wednesday Martin. We are here for 1970s edition of What's the Big Idea? We've got, uh, this is Zach. This is Zach the cat. Mm -hmm. And we've also got uh, Wednesday's beautiful 1970s sandals on. Yay. Always. Which before we started today, I got to get the tour of the apartment. We're right here next to, which museum is this? The Natural History Museum. Natural History Museum next to Central Park. And I got to see your shoe collection. I mean, decorate yourself every day. Ooh, I like that. Just do yourself that solid. So how many how many pairs of shoes do you have? Oh, come on, at least 100. And why what do you love so much about shoes? Oh, they're so joyful. I mean, shoes are like they're an accessory, right? So they're a little, they're a thing that you need, but you can make them as decadent and fun as you want. Yeah. So it would be too much for me to dress, you know, in a joyful way every day, but it's not too much for me every day 
to like have a pair of shoes that brings me joy every day. The, it's thinking about a joyful outfit every day, that would be like a little overwhelming. But just a really fun pair of shoes would be great. And I deal with ideas every day and controversy every day and um, push back every day. And I want something, a space, a place, a thing that just makes me really happy. So that's why I'm really into temporary tattoos and shoes. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I love when you talk about your shoes is I think one of the, the best kind of transformations in my, my thought about fashion is just that someone said, um, wear things not because of how they look, but because of how they make you feel. Mm. of just being aware of when you put something on, like what is the feeling that it actually brings out in you? It's so important. My friend Lucy Barnes, the fashion designer, um, I'm the godmother of her two twin girls. And Lucy taught me very early on that if you can, you know, it means nothing that you have expensive things or beautiful things if they don't feel good. Mm. And that, I think for Lucy Barnes, that means not just... um, that they feel good on your body, which is incredibly important, of right? Of course, yeah. But also that they tell you a story that makes you feel good. And she really trained me. Every surface that you sit on, if you can, should feel good. But you should surround yourself with the things that remind you of things that make you happy. You know, yellow flowers make me really happy. Um, the tray on that bar over there from my grandmother has a lot of happy memories. So we live in a world that assaults us all the time in many ways, especially since 2016. Life has felt like an assault. So, you know, I just, one of my forms of protest is pleasure. I think pleasure is a great political tool and it helps us um, recharge and reminds us what's worth fighting for. And I really take issue when people act like it's shallow that women have an interest in fashion or shoes or something like that, because my whole rallying cry is that, among others, is that pleasure is really a political act. Um, So, you know, I don't think it's shallow. When did you first realize that pleasure was a political act? Well, my whole life, right, because I'm the daughter of a second wave feminist. So I grew up when I was maybe four or five years old. I mean, I had a politically active mother. You know, she was in the Women's Political Caucus, and she taught me about Florence Kennedy and um, Gloria Steinem. And I remember the protests at the Miss America pageant. And um, I always um, knew politics, and I always knew feminism. I grew up with it. It was the air that I breathed. Um, And the second wave feminists, um, for their many shortcomings, one of the things they knew was that the personal was political and that sex and pleasure were important and that they mattered. And I mean, the message that got lost, I think, from the second wave is very much the message that I'm trying to put in my book on true, right? which is that anywhere you see that women have um, political power, economic power, and social power, you will see that those will be ecologies that prioritize female pleasure. Mm. Wherever there's an ecology where male pleasure rules supreme, Mm. uh, you will see that women are earning a lower wage relative to men 
they have poor political representation relative to men and their social voices are muted compared to men. So these things all go together for me. And I guess it's been a process of learning and relearning that since I was a kid. And so how did this play into kind of like your early development of, so you, you grew up with this feminist mom and how did Mm -hmm. that influence what it was that you decided to study, what it was that you decided to start working on earlier in your life? Mm, So interesting. So I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a pretty progressive town. And when I was young, four or five, we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is a very then very politically conservative and remains a very politically conservative place. Michigan is a place of a lot of um, contradictions, right, politically speaking. Um, The labor movement that took root there is progressive, but... um, Grand Rapids was one of the places that like elevated Donald Trump in 2016. So it's a very contradictory place. But the town I grew up in was a small town. It was very conservative. And I kind of was raised by atheist parents in a very, very Christian town. And I was raised by a feminist mom in a place with very retrograde, um, gender-scripted, roles you know the men went out and worked and the women stayed home and um, feminism was just considered kind of crazy I remember my mom would breastfeed my brothers this was in the early 70s I guess and um, in public and in front of my dad's male friends and it was considered just really out there so like very early on I had a sense of what it was to do what you wanted to do against the grain to challenge some norms yeah, even ju- and from a very from the very natural, if you will, um, position of I'm doing this because this is who I am, right? It wasn't a political statement that my mother nursed my brothers in public in 1970, whatever, 72. I don't know. It was what she thought was the right thing to do, um, and there was so much pushback. So I grew up seeing. My primary role model was somebody who did what she wanted and dealt with enormous pushback. I think it was probably pretty hard for her, but it was a great thing to see as a girl growing up. You know, it was wonderful. I was like allowed to have Barbie dolls if I wanted, but I didn't have to say the Pledge of Allegiance at school. Oh, God, I remember that. I was like, I'm not saying the Pledge of Allegiance. My mom said I didn't have to. How old were you? Four, five, (laughs) maybe five, maybe six. And um, my dad probably had a stroke about it. But well, it's, in, it's interesting, but at four, did your mom tell you not to say the Pledge of Allegiance or did she say you can make I a choice about it? I might have been five it? or six and probably there was some political protest going on in the country where somebody burned a flag or something and yeah. my parents were probably trying to understand it. Um, sorry, trying to explain it to me yeah. when I was, I might have been six, I don't know. Sure. And... Um, Knowing the dynamic of my family, it was probably that my father (laughs) was explaining it from a more right-leaning position and my mother from a more left-leaning position. And probably what I took from it was some people are very angry at the government right now and feel like the government is making a lot of mistakes and they're expressing their anger and that's how we change things. That's how we'll stop a war. That's how we'll start treating black people better. Mm. That's how we'll start treating women better and so probably I connected that you know with I don't have to I don't have to pledge allegiance to this flag so probably then I was 
and I remember that I was in first grade when I did that. So 1970, 1971, because I'm 54 now. When you talk about how when we express ourselves, we can change things. When did you first start expressing yourself as a writer in that capacity? As a writer, I don't know, maybe, you know, when I was in elementary school. Really? Yeah, I just... um, It was just in you? Yep. It was something I was good at. And I mean, I wish that I had more developed the muscle as a kid of doing things that I wasn't good at. I wish I had had role models, like teachers who encouraged me to do stuff I was bad at. But I I guess it was personal too. I just had like a phobia of failing. So I just tended toward, I mean, I was a typical girl, right? I mean, in my own way, in my own way, in spite of saying I'm not pledging allegiance to the flag and in spite of saying I'm not with the Girl Scout, I remember we had to say, um, we had to recite something to like pledge allegiance to the Girl Scouts and I wouldn't say the thing about God. And my Girl Scout leader really wanted me to and I, I remember crying. I didn't want to say the thing about God that I whatever was I pledging allegiance to God or I don't know what the Girl Scout credo is but that was a problem for me and I didn't want to say it and I remember just crying like feeling so much the contradiction between wanting approval and and needing to comply and just saying no I don't believe that and writing um, was always part of splitting the difference for me I knew I was good at it but I knew I could you know sort of write stuff about not wanting to do what I was supposed to do (laughs) or that that was an act in a way it was like a defiant creative act for me from the very beginning plus it was something I was good at so I could get approval it was like a win-win what's what what is it that is and you talk so much about the influence of your mom but I think that something so weird something something that I'd love to understand is I mean so much of your work is about challenging culturally accepted norms, yeah. beliefs that have been in place for a long time that right. are actually untrue. Right, right. Um, but what gave you the confidence, the assurance to actually stand up to people at such a young age? And even now as you move into your career, and I want to work back into really what the big ideas that we're going to focus on today, but what is it in you that gives you the strength and honestly the courage to open yourself up to a lot of criticism when you're challenging you know, kind of entrenched institutions and longstanding beliefs. Yeah. Well, that's um, a nice way of framing it. Like you're framing me as like somehow heroic or like doing it intentionally. But I think a lot of this has to do with, I'm talking about my family a lot today. I never talk about my family. But like, I think it has to do with family systems a lot. Like I grew up the bad object in my family and in my town, right? We were like atheists in a town of Christians. My mom was a feminist in a town of homemakers. Um, I felt like we really stuck out. And then in addition, in my family, I was kind of the bad object in my family. I mean, when I was older, I was the one who... um, You know, I moved away. I criticized. I argued I mean in retrospect I was super compliant I would be so happy if my 18 year old son behaved (laughs) as like compliantly as I did when I was a teenager but somehow I just always thought of myself as bad and I think that when you grow up the bad object in your family it's very easy to just say wait a second there are all these things wrong 
I think, in the culture. And I know a world of shit is going to rain down on me for saying it, but I'm used to it. Like, this is what I do. Sometimes I look at somebody like Ann Coulter, who I just find so objectionable on every level. And I think she's coming from a place, perhaps, um, of real compulsion to, like, get people to beat up on her and to incite attacks against her. And I'm like, what pathology does that come from that she does this? But, I mean, she and I are at completely opposite ends of the ideological spectrum, but there's a way in which, to a less extreme extent, I can identify with that. Like, being that person who, for whatever my family history is and whatever my convictions are, I'm... It's not that I'm brave to put myself out there and do it. It's that I'm sort of, it's sort of in me. Like, yeah, sure, I'll be the person who says this thing. Like, even though it's going to piss off certain people. Like, I'm used to that. I'm the bad object. You've been exposed (laughs) to that experience. That can be the upside of like, a lot of people would say, what a terrible psychological trauma to be the bad object in your family or whatever. Or like, to not have had my father's attention, right? Like, my father was busy. He was a typical busy late 60s, early 70s dad. He wasn't involved in child rearing in the way he was with my brothers. I was a girl. It was confusing. So my father ignoring me and having been the bad object, a lot of people could say, like, oh, what a terrible thing. Mm. But it, like, primed me to be the person who's like, listen to me. I want your attention, and I'm going to tell you something that you might not like hearing. And it's... It's just another day for me because... Totally. Yeah, so I think a lot of it is just that. What's well, <laughs> so often... take credit for from, it. It's like acting out. Yeah, well, was for so many people that we've had on the show, again, just what, what becomes clear as they tell their kind of story arc is how their own experience of trauma, of suffering, has provided such clarity for the impact that they want to have in others of like whatever their own wound was that they want to speak to, to help others assist to, their own experience that they then use for fuel to drive them forward. And and so I would say that I do see you as courageous and (laughs) helping a lot of people. Well, so then is you don't, how do you, when people ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I'm a cultural critic and an author and Mm -hmm. I use social science and storytelling to help set people free, especially women, to help them understand themselves and see themselves in new ways and to help them understand that they're normal. Yeah. And so when you, the word that stood out to me there was to set women free. Yeah. How are women not free? Oh my God. How long do we have? I mean, so many ways. First of all, you know, we can't talk about women in general, like Black and brown women in this country right now are so not free in so many ways. I was just at um, the Reverend Al Sharpton's birthday party at the Apollo Theater, and um, Alicia Garza and Patrice Cullors were both honored who helped start Black Lives Matter. And Alicia Garza said, you know, hashtags don't change the world, people change the world. I mean, and the pushback that Patrice Cullors and... um, that Patrice and Opal and Alicia have all experienced, you know, most of us can't even begin to imagine that. But for black and brown women, for a lot of women of color in this country since 2016 and since a lot longer than that, it's hard to even imagine dealing with that much criticism all the time 
and and getting up and getting through the day and persisting and driving a social movement. So there's that, right? There's the there's the race piece. I mean, we live in a country that does not value black and brown women, period. And if you don't believe that, stay out of my DMs. I don't have time to fight with stupid people. Um, so there's that. Then there are the um, other systems of oppression that are institutionalized, like wage discrepancy. We still have a real problem with wage discrepancy in this country. Women still are not equaling what men are on the dollar. Um, it's interesting, Asian American women are at the top of closing the wage gap, then white women, um, and then at the very bottom are native women, um, and somewhere in between there are Latina and black women, but we have far to go with that. So that's just an obvious thing. And What's, the number of people who say to me, there is no wage gap, yeah. again, like, go away. Re like, do you stay out of my DMs. Well, could you, because again, like the, so the kind of the knee-jerk reaction to the wage gap conversation, which I'd love to hear you rebut, which would be that, um, men are taking riskier jobs, which have higher pay for kind of like similar hours worked and that women don't make as much because they oftentimes leave the workplace to raise children. So, so that's another systematic form of oppression, right? That the gender script still holds that women are the one who, the ones who by and large choose. are still primary caregivers. Is that a choice or is that a false choice? Hmm. When you say to a woman, here are your choices. You can stay at work where there is no daycare for you on site. It will be impossible for you to nurse your baby or see your toddler at all, right? But you can stay here and you can be here and you can be at work. Or you cannot work and have time with your baby or your child and do the nursing thing if that's what you want to do or just do the one-on-one -on -one time. Um, plus, your husband's making more money than you are if you're statistically normal, um, so what's it going to be? How is that a choice? A choice is if you say to me, do you want to stay home and do those things? Or do you want to be in the workplace with childcare and support of you being a mother? That's a choice. Yeah. The other thing is a false choice. So when people say that about the wage gap, I say, right. So all you're saying to me is not only are women earning less than men on average, um, but there's your rebuttal to that is saying yeah that women are choosing when women aren't really choosing so when we parse the reality of it um what becomes very clear is that there are ripples right there are these ripple effects and they're all linked yeah could you speak i, I could you speak to the piece of that as well because i trust your input here is on the piece of men taking riskier work as well, which then leads to a discrepancy in the wages for same hours. Work. I don't know what we mean by riskier work. Like How literally like harm on the job, death. So kind well, of like what we know version. is that men who work those kind of jobs earn much less than men in white collar jobs, yeah. like hedge fund managers, right? Or people in finance, which is still largely uh, run by men. So when we talk about risk, um, and benefits to risk. In fact, we don't really benefit men who are iron workers and who are walking up high on bridges in the same way that we, um, you know, uh, reward men who go get their MBA from Harvard. Sure. So that's kind of a false claim to me. Now, about risk, um, the other thing that goes into it is not just how we're defining risk, which I just did mm -hmm. in a certain way. Um, but the other thing is, 
men tend, and we see this in the data over and over, um, they will tend to over, um, sorry, how to say this, um, men will tend to reach believe like, believe yeah, that they're more take, qualified than they are yeah women will tend to believe that they are less qualified than they are men believing intrinsically in their qualification for something that they're technically underqualified for if they were looking at themselves from the standard a woman looks at herself and we know this we have plenty of studies that show us this men will then reach yeah are we going to penalize women for the fact that we've raised them to be compliant and a woman will look at a job application, and if she doesn't meet 99.9% of the criteria, she won't even apply. Yeah. But a man will apply, I've seen different statistics, if he meets between 30 and 60% roughly of the criteria. Mm. Now, let's talk about choice and risk now. We have a larger underlying systemic problem that only people parenting children um, are going to be able to address, I think. Only, you know, people of your generation, the way you're raising your kids. Um, and my kid, who is of a generation of kids who are like sort of non-binary thinkers, I think maybe that'll start changing these things. Um, there is a wage gap. That's all there is to it. But let's <laughs> let's fix it. So we had, a, we had a guy on our podcast, so I bet you would have a lot to disagree with. Do you know Warren Farrell of the boy crisis and... Yes, I do. So the whole point is to have people on here of mm -hmm. disparate viewpoints. Mm -hmm. So, right? Well, you talk about the inherent contradiction of Grand Rapids, and I'm like, what well, mm -hmm. feels like a democracy where people have different ideas and, mm -hmm. like, you know, it can swing in a certain place when... Mm, right. So... Yeah. I don't really talk about the people who... Look, feminism is about how... Feminism is simply the belief in the inherent value and equality of all people. Totally. Period. We can talk about a masculinity crisis. We can talk about um, a crisis among girls. Feminism is about being concerned about and addressing all of that, 100%. Um, but you were asking me about how women aren't free. Mm. And I talked about... Um, for example, race, yeah. the wage gap. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to sexuality, uh, what we see is some real, um, some really deeply woven ideology that we've been embracing forever. And now that women are doing primatology and anthropology and sex research and women are a greater presence in medicine, the most amazing thing for me about writing on true was seeing how women just brought different forms of curiosity and compassion and insight to science. Yeah. And so they enriched it, you know, through, through those forms of uh, curiosity. So for a long time, we were like, yeah, the female macaque just like stands there and then the male comes over and mounts her and she's just like passively standing there like this <laughs> and the male is mounting her and male sexuality is like active and assertive and female sexuality is like do me. Yeah. Bent over at the waist and saying do me. So female primatologists came into the field and basically what they did is they said, well, what happens if we let the female macaque out of the cage? Hmm. Right. And then what happens if we 
like push the tape back and we start observing the whole. And what is a macaque? Just so oh, I have a sorry, visual. Sorry, a macaque is a really common monkey. Okay, got like, it. Like they're the they're like the squirrels. They're like the rodents of the monkey world. Okay, like, got they're it. All over. They're super adaptive. They're great niche exploiters. They're all over the world. They're the ones who like will like in China they'll like jump on your head and take your snack. Yeah. Right. And so the. The female primatologist said, first of all, let's let the macaque out of the cage and see what happens um, when she's not in captivity. And then let's like push the video back and start the observation sooner. And what they saw is that actually, you know, the male would be sitting there and the female would like sidle over and like put her shoulder against him and give him a grimace. Now I'm conflating different non-human primate behaviors, different non-human female primate ways of soliciting a copulation, but we'll just stay with macaques in in name. Sidle up, give a grimace, um, maybe depending on the species, like rub her ass and then maybe even lean forward on the ground depending on the species and like hit the ground as a way of saying like let's come do on this. let's yeah. do this thing um some species of non-human female primates will throw themselves down on the ground and start screaming if a male won't mate with them some of them will chase a male slap a male there are all these behaviors that were under the radar because male scientists were identifying with male macaques yeah and they were sort of re-upping the narrative of male sexual assertiveness and female passivity without looking at the actual sexual behavior and social behavior of the players on the ground. So when we talk about, you know, how women are not free, one of the things that has kept us in the cage, if you will, is that men were doing the science about who we were and narrating the story of who we are. So we're at this really exciting moment Thanks to second wave feminism, thanks to Title IX, thanks to civil rights activists, where we're like a couple decades, few decades into this and beyond this, yeah. we have n- new points of view in the science that are enriching it, including the science of female sexuality. So that's where I've been living for the last four years, just trying to cross that science over, trying to cross over the idea that, in fact, monogamy is not easier for women than it is for men. In fact, it's probably more difficult for women, trying to cross over the idea that the male libido is not, quote, stronger, unquote, than the female libido. Um, So basically... There have been these big shifts, these big ideas are shifting in the science, and I want to cross them over into the mainstream. I love that. And so what's the actual tagline of Untrue? The tagline or yeah. the subtitle? Subtitle. The su- <laughs> yeah, sorry. The been too much time in product. I know. I need a tagline. The, <laughs> the subtitle so long. It's Untrue. Why nearly everything we believe about women, lust, and infidelity is wrong, and how the new science can set us free. So when was the moment that you realized that this was a book and something that you wanted to commit? How long did it take you to write it? So Primates of Park Avenue came out in like June of 2015. And then I was scuba diving in December of 2015. And when you're scuba diving, you're just so in the present moment. Like there's nothing you can, do you dive? I just dove for the first time in Australia and it was, I've spent my entire life in the ocean and I, my first experience coming out of the water while diving, 
I was just blown away because I was at the Great Barrier Reef. And then you realize oh, that this wow. thing is the size of Japan. And it's this entire universe that looks completely alien that I had never experienced. You spent your whole life in the ocean, but you had never really seen it. I never right? dove. I was always surfing. It <laughs> is. So do you know? And I love the way you your first dive was the Great Barrier Reef. Was, yeah. You're like, you know, let to. me start large. Okay, let so, me not start. So what happened as you were so, diving? So as you know, when you're diving, all you're doing is being in the present moment. You're breathing and you're trying, you're just breathing and looking at what's right in front of you. So it's a great meditative um, thing. And a lot of my ideas fall into place when I'm meditating. And I thought to myself, like, my very first book was about Marlena Dietrich and what a badass she was and how she just did not listen to anybody. And, and she, who who's Marlena Dietrich as well? Cause <laughs> Marlena the- Dietrich was a huge um, star in the Hollywood system in the late 30s she um came up in weimar germany a very decadent sort of um sexually out there and socially out there moment in berlin and then she came um, to the u.s and she became a huge star she she was the first um female celebrity to wear pants she was in an open marriage she had affairs with women she um had this thing called a sewing circle which was like all these women who were big celebrities and were married to men or were ostensibly heterosexual, but they were really... It feels impossible to conceive of that, like of not being familiar with that generation. But oh. for someone who's like in the, the public eye to be in an open marriage at that time... Yeah, she Marlena Dietrich was really out there and she just she drove her PR people crazy all the time. Yeah, she yeah. was at Paramount and she was giving people heart attacks all the time. <laughs> so my very first book was based on my dissertation and I had had a dissertation chapter about Marlena Dietrich. So she was the first person I wrote about, right? A badass rule breaker. My second book was about stepmothers and how much we hate them and how we misunderstand them and all the gender bias that goes into our stepmother hatred. Mm. And then I wrote Primates of Park Avenue, which is about rich women on the Upper East Side and how they really like live in a very oppressive culture. Mm. And there's a lot of intersexual competition there's a lot of sexism there are these really retrograde gender roles and people kind of like love to hate and judge rich mommies so i'm scuba diving and i'm thinking weirdly about you know like whatever's right in front of me on the coral reef and i'm also thinking about the arc of my career and i'm just like i love writing about women we love to hate and we just love to hate the woman that we used to call the adulteress. Hmm. And I just really need to dig into that because I think that if I understand our cultural hatred of her, it'll tell me a lot about us. I probably won't learn as much about her as I will about the culture who has set her up as a villain. Yeah. So I called my agent at the time. My agent then was Richard Pine and, um, he was really supportive and enthusiastic about the project. And I just started writing, a proposal about it but the interesting thing is of course the ground was totally shifting underneath my feet like we didn't call them adulteresses anymore although we still hate women who cheat in a mm. way that we don't hate men who cheat but the, now all these cool things were going on there was consensual non-monogamy there was polyamory and women were leading those movements in, in a lot of ways and in a lot of places so I was like this is so cool I wanted to look at female infidelity but female infidelity is changing all the time even as our ideas about it are really like sort of frozen and stuck. So I was like, oh, this is going to be good. Like also like I had been married for so many years and I 
I knew so many women like me who were just like, so how tenable is monogamy? How is it serving me or not serving me? And what is the evolutionary backstory of female sexuality that's making monogamy hard for most women and for females of most species? And why isn't there a cultural conversation about it? Why is the cultural conversation like framing men as these like faithless dogs, right? Which isn't true. Hmm. And framing women as these like hearthbound, oh no, monogamy is easier for me because I get pregnant. Hmm. I knew there was a shit ton of science out there about how these easy distinctions could no longer hold, but it wasn't in the mainstream yet. So I just was like, this is going to be delicious. I can live here for three years. Like Mickey talked about yeah, that, right? When we talked how to long, Mickey. How long can I be passionate about this? How, can, how long can, and I knew that I could really be enthused about the adulteress and female infidelity for years. So there's a few very specific arcs that I want to explore a little more deeply and the one that you just talked about is how men and women are judged differently when it comes to infidelity. And so what is it that you wish people could know or shift their perspective on as it comes to infidelity? And what do you perceive as the difference in how we look at male versus female adulterers? Okay, well, I think there's still very much a double standard. I mean, I know this from writing about female sexuality. I never expected pushback from the places that I got pushback, like keto paleo culture guys or guys who like are Bernie Sanders supporters. Like <laughs> I didn't know how much retrograde ideology about gender lives in progressive spaces still. So that was really interesting and instructive. Um, <laughs> but basically, you know, our cultural belief still is that it is natural for men to struggle with monogamy. And it is unnatural for women to struggle with monogamy. And this comes from this misunderstanding that men were designed to spread their seed and women were designed to be choosy and coy and find the one best guy. Hmm. Science has since peeled back those layers. Um, Sex researchers have found that women experience a drop in desire in the first one to four years of a long-term monogamous relationship, Hmm. whereas men don't experience a drop of desire for nine to 12 years. Hmm. And people used to say, of course, that's because women don't like sex as much as men do. But female researchers got in there and realized it's not that they don't like sex anymore. It's that they're having a harder time having sex with the same person over and over and over again than a man is. Hmm. Now this is a complete reversal of our script that it's men who need variety and novelty and adventure and that's natural. A lot of them do. But way more women than we've been willing to admit need variety and novelty and adventure every bit as much if not more. And we have longitudinal studies from Germany, from Finland, from the U.S., from the U.K., from Canada, well-designed long-term studies showing the same effect repeatedly that in long-term exclusive living together arrangements, female desire will drop really steeply much sooner. Hmm. The other thing we know from some of the studies is that women who aren't living with their guy, I'm sorry that we're talking so much about heterosexuality, but unfortunately that's what a lot of the studies about female desire have focused on. We need to change that. Yeah. Um, but so 
these what these studies are showing us very clearly and and many of the researchers asked well let's look at this effect if women aren't living with men and when they're not living with the men the the drop is much more modest hmm. so it's living together and domesticity and enmeshment that's killing female libido but we've said exactly the opposite about hmm. women we've told women no 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 you need to be super intimate and enmeshed and close in order to feel sexually inflamed and excited the data are showing us that in fact the opposite is true for women and that domesticity dampens female desire more quickly and more thoroughly um than it does male desire so that's really um like a it's just like a surprising finding i think for a lot of people um how do you how do you grapple with in there um just the idea of the prioritization of male pleasure versus female pleasure in that drop-off you know where yep. it's again mm-hmm. it's much I'd, much easier for a guy to have penetrative sex and get off. Okay, so and, here's something interesting. Annika yeah. Gunst is a Finnish um, researcher who studied this, and she found that women, she studied women in different relationship configurations, including mm-hmm. long-term monogamous ones. And she found that the monogamous women reported greater frequency of orgasm and yet less desire and less sexual satisfaction. Can you say it one more time? So Mm -hmm. So women in monogamous long-term relationships were reporting, yeah, I have great frequency of orgasm, but I have low desire and Hmm. low sexual satisfaction. It doesn't matter if women are having great orgasms. They're still bored with the same guy over and over and over. Women in the aggregate, Hmm. there are some exceptions, not that many. Um, And so if we just normalized for people the very true story of female sexual boredom within years one to four on average in a committed relationship think how many relationships we could save think how many women would stop saying there's something wrong with me there's something wrong with my partner there's something wrong with my relationship let me think of an excuse to blow it up so i can go be with somebody new we could really change long-term commitment if we normalize the fact that there is a drop in female desire between years one and four, and that if a woman craves to step out, if she craves variety and novelty and adventure, she's a normal human woman being a normal human woman, end of story. She doesn't have to get a divorce. There's nothing wrong probably with her husband. It has nothing to do with having kids, which is another finding that Annika Gunst had. I mean, some data do show that having kids and being still pretty much the primary caregiver um, does dampen the female libido. Of course, you have kids like sucking on you, hanging on you. You've got all this <laughs> touch going on in your That makes sense. But even independent of that, women are having a drop in desire. So even controlling for all these potential other factors, childbirth, argument, death of parents, you know, personality differences with your spouse, you control for all those variables. You're still seeing women getting bored with sex with the same person over and over and over faster than men do let's just deal with it but it's very hard do you know why tell me it goes against the script of everything that we've been told of monogamy right of gender yeah we're to, so here's a thing also that i think has served men i just hate um how sexism in science has harmed men um so an academic named Sarah Hunter Murray, whose work I just love, 
Uh, she did a very important study showing that college-age women between the ages of 18 and 25, for them, um, long-term relationships were predictive of low desire, mm-hmm. right? Unlike men. We see this repeatedly in study after study. So Sarah Hunter Murray did one of these studies. She recently wrote a book called Not Always in the Mood. And she writes in this book about how all kinds of ideologies, including like Trump ideology, right? That like, this is how men are and this is how women are. And like women should be decorative like Melania Trump and men should be out there like fucking porn stars and um, when they're married, but casting aspersions on Hillary Clinton, like this is just the way it is, right? Um, She talks about how all kinds of ideologies, including that one, are really framing men And she wrote about how men face this issue that they hate, which is that they're supposed to be these ever-ready energizer bunnies. They just want to fuck at the drop of a hat. A real man just wants to, like, screw whatever isn't nailed down. That's just how men are. And what she was finding is men were really suffering because a lot of men, if not most men, want connection they want to feel sexy. They want to feel validated. They want to feel desired. They need that to be interested in sex. Um, a lot of men told Sarah Hunter Murray, sometimes I'm sick or I'm like in an argument or my feelings have been hurt by my partner and then I'm, I can't do it. Men have a lot of performance anxiety because of all the bad science that we've crammed down their throats and, and, porn which by the way I love porn don't take away my porn but the the tropes in porn about male pleasure just means jackhammering and performing and like shooting off on somebody's face or whatever um that's setting men up you know in a certain way so we've really um painted men into a corner with bad science um and about female pleasure so I was going to get to that point look it's all linked As long as we live in an unequal society and women are on the losing side, right? As long as women are earning less, they're not president of the United States. Uh, Their social voice isn't considered as important. Um, They're asymmetrically harassed on social media. Whatever it is, as long as there's inequality, we're not going to value female pleasure. We're not going to value female pleasure until we value femaleness the same way we value maleness. And the more we sort of frame and misrepresent men Mm. and frame and misrepresent women, the more we're going to perpetuate this pleasure gap, which you probably know the statistics, but in a heterosexual encounter, a man has three orgasms for every orgasm a woman has. And you might say, oh, what does it matter? It's just sex. It doesn't matter at all. It does because it tells us everything about what we value in our culture. Mm. We value male pleasure because we value maleness. Um, Heterosexuals tend to have intercourse because it's the easiest way for men to get off and we value male pleasure. We're going to know we have a revolution on our hands when the way we're having sex the most is the way that gets women off. And when we redefine foreplay as sex because it's what women like and when we redefine cunnilingus, which we know is the surefire thing for majority not all women but for the majority of women when that gets to count as sex right now we live in a world that tells us that sex equals intercourse and we believe that because that's what gets men off 
and male pleasure is our priority and that's linked to our larger cultural priorities so how do you define sex how do you define sex sex is that's a good question for all your listeners how do you guys define sex i think until i wrote untrue for me sex was intercourse right clinton i did not have sex with that woman because all he did was get a blow job and maybe he went down on her i don't remember the details but um our culture defines sex as intercourse because we're focused on men ejaculating Mm. that's the sex act right that's when sex is over the guy comes that tells us a lot. I think sex is a whole wide menu now that I wrote Untrue, right? Sex is like lying there in bed and just like lying on top of each other and enjoying it. Or if there are three of you enjoying it or five of you, I don't care. It's um, non-penetrative sex is also sex. Sex is not just penis in vagina sex intercourse. We've got to untangle that, Right. All the things that give women pleasure that we call foreplay. Fingering, vibrators, dildos, um, grinding, clitoral stimulation, all that clit stim. Yeah. We'll know that we're living in an ecology that values women when sex is anything that's stimulating the clitoris. So one of the things, actually, <laughs> I just, I love that we're talking about this because I actually just talked about it this morning with Mickey. So last night, we, she was talking to her masseuse, and, and he asked her a question, and he said, when you are getting ready for penetrative sex, it, are you going into the act thinking that you are about to like receive pleasure or you're going to service your partner? And her response was that I'm going to service my partner, even though any time that we're having penetrative sex, for the most part, I've already gotten her off. So that she's ready, and she calls okay. me in. And so it's again, it's almost like, a little bit of conditioning in her. And so uh-huh. today, this morning, I got her off and then rather than she pulled me in like she does and I paused and I was like, like what's what's going on in right. your, what's going on in your head right now? And it was just that of like that she wanted to pleasure me and it was there. But it's interesting how much of the, there is there, you know, when we talk about intuition. Yeah. But intuition developed through kind of like a narrative that right, this exactly. is the most important thing that that's this here. is the most important thing to Andrew because this is the most important thing to men. And by the way, I think it can be so hot to get your partner off to just like do something. Like who hasn't said to a partner they really care about, like, oh my God, just do what you want. Right? Mm. It can be so hot when your partner is like losing control and just doing what they want. That's, that feels powerful and sexy to the other person. What I would be worried about, and I think you and I talked about this, and you and Mickey and I talked about this, is the idea of um, habitual service sex, mm. where a heterosexual woman is habitually um, not into sex because she's a normal human female and she... Um, is not feeling as much desire after years one and four, and she has this increased need for variety and novelty and adventure, which doesn't mean you have to step out. It just means you have to address it. And she's a normal human female, and nobody has told her any of this stuff about herself, so she she's in years one to four, and she's like, guess I just don't like sex, right? Because nobody said to her, no, you just have a harder time with the sex that you can have. Hmm. And there are ways for us to address this so you can stay with your partner and keep it hot. Nobody's saying that to her. So she's like, I guess I just don't like sex anymore. So I'm going to have sex to keep my partner happy and to keep the glue of the relationship 
there and to keep things on an even keel. Then you're having service sex because it's not about pleasure for yourself, right? You're doing it for somebody else. Now, after there's nothing wrong with a maintenance shag once in a while. <laughs> Guys do it for their heterosexual female partners and Women do it for their guys in a heterosexual relationship. Um, gay men have told me that they do a maintenance shag. Um, lesbians are another thing. They have sex on average. I think like each encounter is like twice as long as uh. heterosexuals do. Heterosexual men, if you want have a girlfriend or a wife that you want to please or a partner, just like get a tutorial from a lesbian. Okay, just that's a little <laughs> bit of a sidebar. But what I wanted to say is service sex to me is an epidemic and it's not an interpersonal problem in a relationship. It's a cultural issue. It's a social problem about living in a world that prioritizes male pleasure hmm. so that we're doing it on a micro level too, individually, we're prioritizing that male pleasure. Um, so it's something to think about, you know, are you having service sex? Or is, but the other thing is, you know, a lot of women really do enjoy intercourse and they really do enjoy like getting their partner off and doing something like that, even if they're not going to have an orgasm from it. Come on, it can be like great and connected and wonderful. So I'm not disparaging the way anybody has sex. Yeah. I'm just asking people to think about what the data are showing us, which is that there is a lot of inequality in heterosexual sex, including an orgasm gap. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm curious about is that, so when you address the drop off in desire in women, which to me kind of begs the question, like you say, we can deal with that. And so when you bring in kind of like the possibility of non-monogamy, mm -hmm. polyamory, which then again pushes up against some pretty powerful narratives right. of right. like I think about like the conduciveness of monogamy for child rearing mm -hmm. and these kinds of things. And so, which by the way, it's so difficult to raise children in a mon monogamous dyad as opposed to in a group setting. And we really did evolve as cooperative breeders. So like, Monogamy is the weird hard so, thing. So say more about children. cooperative breeding because I don't. Yeah. Okay, do so we used to believe in anthropology. I studied anthropology as an undergraduate and a graduate student, so it's kind of my way of seeing the world. Yeah. Um. So, and Chris Ryan in Sex at Dawn and I in Untrue. So Chris and Casilda, his um, writing partner, um, Casilda Jetha, wrote about cooperative breeding in Sex at Dawn, and I write about it in Untrue. Somebody named Sarah Hurdy, um, an anthropologist and comparativist um, who's been very important figure in the study of human evolution, especially social and sexual behaviors, kind of crossed this idea over. Uh, we used to believe that we evolved in these monogamous dyads, right? And you have heard people talk about it like caveman evolution. Like, yeah, there was like a, there were like a male and a female in a cave and they had a baby and the male had to go off and provision the baby. And that's how we developed like um, such great sight from man, the hunter. And that's how we developed um, orgasm because man the hunter and that's how we evolved um the social structures that in, that we've inherited today because man the hunter okay it turns out that that wasn't the case at all and we know from all kinds of different directions and disciplines that and now the widely accepted belief among anthropologists now is that we evolved as cooperative breeders we evolved in these kind of 
rangy bands of related and loosely related people and not, and unrelated people who all kind of had each other's backs and we mated multiply and raised our offspring cooperatively so that everybody was sort of invested in the well-being of everybody else and the pretty much mainstream thinking now is that that's the reason Homo habilis or Homo ergaster bit the dust, right? And Homo sapiens is still standing today. We had this brilliant social and sexual strategy in which we sort of spread responsibility around so that everybody would be equally invested in offspring surviving to the age at which they could reproduce, which is how you define reproductive success. Mm. Now, it's no coincidence that this whole man the hunter stuff really started getting going in the generation or so after um, men came home from World War II and um, we had the GI Bill and people were encouraged to move to the suburbs and to live in monogamous heterosexual dyads. And we very quickly, we had gone from many of us living in extended families to the GI Bill really in a lot of ways encouraging um, splintering off into more isolated, um, suburban, uh, exclusive heterosexual dyads. And then we very quickly told ourselves, this is the way it's supposed to be. Hmm. This is the natural, and even though it was completely off the script from how we had evolved and how we'd lived until recently, historically, pretty much with the help of extended families. Um, so here we are in the 50s, you know, post GI Bill, 50s and 60s. And then along comes anthropology to say, sure, this is the way we're doing it now because it's the way that we've always done it, because it's the natural way, because it's the way it's supposed to be. And that's how bullshit becomes science that gets taught in textbooks. Mm. And then we inherit and we say, there's something wrong with me that I'm struggling with monogamy. So anybody who wants to read more about cooperative breeding, there's a great book by Sarah Hurdy called Mothers and Others. Mm. There's another one about mother nature. It's called Mother Nature. And it's about how female sexual behavior, particularly maternal behavior, has been one of the most important drivers of human evolution. So I highly recommend those if you're like a person who's poly or non-monogamous and you're arguing with your parents and your peers about it a lot. Totally. You could get a lot of um, support and validation and have a lot of interesting conversations after you read Sarah Hurdy on cooperative breeding. Yeah. As you're talking about it, I think about uh, this anecdote I heard recently, and it was about, I, I, I may misspeak. I know that it was some sort of pilgrim or sailor who was, he was uh, encountering a Native American tribe for the first time. And when he got there, he was having a conversation with one of the, the Indians. And he says, as he sees them kind of co-parenting, this mm, kind of like yeah, communal rearing. Yeah. And so he looks at them and he says, he's like, how do you like? How do you know which one is your child? And he was like, "It's so silly. They're all our child." They're right. They're, and it was they, yeah. It was like the idea that if a child was on the ground, like you would pick it up. I and yeah. You, if someone was crying, it's like it was all of them doing it together, and that was what made it possible. Being a cooperative breeder is in us in mm. a way that monogamy is not in us. We there we are very flexible sexual and social strategists we can thrive homo sapiens in a lot of different arrangements polyandry where a woman has more than one spouse um you know 
polygyny, where a man has more than one spouse, um, being asexual. Uh, we, we can thrive in many different arrangements. We are primed for it. But that doesn't mean that there's not one groove that's easiest for us to fall into. And I like to say um, that like, if you see a kid in distress, mm. um, you will go over to that kid unless you're a sociopath and try to help. And that's cooperative breeding alive and well in you, in your brain, in your heart, in your behaviors, in your emotions. Yeah. That's the thing that got us here as a species. That's why we kicked ass. And so when people say, oh, competition is so normal and violence is so normal, which is what a lot of the chimp primatologists are very focused on, um, you know, the response to that is at least as important um, always was was cooperation, always. I mean, we just know it now. Um, so, yeah, cooperative breeding. It's happening every day. Don't fight it. So we, we've gone through uh, we've gone through libido and desire and challenging monogamy. What are some of the other things that as you were exploring this book became clear to you that you were unaware of before that just kind of blew you away? Well... I went to, well, first of all, talking to Tammy Nelson, Dr. Tammy Nelson and Dr. Alicia Walker, who are sex researchers, one of the things they said to me was Alicia through her research and Tammy through her clinical work with many, many couples over the years. What they both said to me is motivation for infidelity does not break down neatly by gender. Many, many men are stepping out because they want validation they want to feel sexy. They want to feel loved. They want to feel valued. They want mm. emotional connection. And many women are stepping out because they're saying, you know, my marriage is fine or my long-term relationship is fine, but I'm bored. I want variety. I want novelty. I want adventure. Or like everything's always been great, but our sex life has never been great, but I don't want to dump this person. Mm. So many women are in it for the sex and many men are in it for the emotional connection. I like to say that in one study, a third of women who were having affairs rated their marriages as happy or very happy. Okay. Mm. So we can't say women only step out or crave some variety and novelty when there are problems at home. It's just not true. Um, so that was something that really blew my mind that, that when it came to motivation for seeking extra pair involvement, men and women are coming from the same place. So that was really surprising and interesting. The other thing was that one of the things that I do in my book, in, in Untrue, I have a formula for all my books, basically. I do participant observation, which is field work, mm -hmm. right? And I review lots and lots of studies. I look at the social science literature. I, I look at the primatology. I look at the medicine. And I interview experts. And I interview actual women. That's what I do. That's how I write my books. So for Primates of Park Avenue, for my field work, I like went to galas. I went to parents association meetings. I went on play dates. Um, I went shopping with women. I hung out with, women, with mommies, right? For this book, I did things like, among other things, I went to sex parties. And one of the sex parties I went to was Skirt Club, which is a sex party for women only. And the interesting thing about it, and it you like apply and um, it's, it's at a secret location and it's like a roving all women's sex and empowerment party. And so I went 
And I knew about Squirt Club that most of the women who go identify as mostly heterosexual. Mm. A lot of them are married or they have long-term male partners and they're just there for a night of experimentation or they know they're kind of into women and they want to explore that more or they definitely know they are and this is a thing they do sometimes. Okay, so I went to Skirt Club the first time and I had read everything about the sexuality of non-human female primates. I had read about human women needing variety and novelty and adventure. I knew what the female libido was, that it was not less than the male libido. I knew that in, eco- in, in ecologies and contexts where female sexuality um, could be free, it was, that mm. it all depended on the container. Mm. I mean, that's the thing about female sexuality. It will just morph depending on its container. Mm. It will be as, as assertive and adventurous as it can be. That's the way it is. I knew all that. But then I went to skirt club. And I watched what was happening around me. And I had really never seen anything like it. You know, you open a bedroom door and there are eight women going at it Mm. on the bed. They're not apologizing. They're not holding back. They're not going to see each other tomorrow. They might never see each other again. Um, And I said, this is the most amazing living laboratory of everything that I've been learning about female sexuality. And I'm getting to actually see it. That when it can be, female sexuality is assertive, agentic, uh, adventurous, and strong. I had never seen data come to life the way that I saw it at Skirt Club. So that was something that really blew my mind. I'm just curious from, <laughs> from an organization standpoint, what did they do to liberate that in the women that were there? Okay, well, let's think about it because in the chapter of Untrue where I write about Skirt Club, I also write about female bonobos. Yeah. And how female bonobos, um, bonobos are a female dominant species. Very few people know that. My friend, Dr. Amy Parrish, told the world that. Everybody was like, oh, they're like swingers. They have sex all the time. They're this, they're that, they're peaceful. And Amy said, you're missing something. The females, the females eat first, the females get groomed the most, and the females inflict violence and sometimes near lethal violence on the males, whereas the males basically don't raise a hand against the females. We're dealing with the female dominant species. Our closest relatives, some people believe, are more closely related to bonobos than we are to chimps. It depends on how you feel about a couple studies about muscle. and But they're at least as closely related to us as chimps, perhaps more closely so. I heard, just to frame that, someone once told me that bonobos are more closely related to chimps than African elephants are to Indian elephants. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So bonobos, arguably our very closest relatives, yeah. are a matriarchal hookup culture where the, <laughs> where the females prefer having sex with other females. If a female bonobo is simultaneously solicited by a male and another female, if, if a female is standing there and a female and a male both come up to her and say, hey, how about it? She's much more likely to go with the female. So female bonobos build their power base by having sex with each other. They do it because it feels good. They have these forward-facing, enlarged-to-us clits, right? And it feels better to press those up against each other Hmm. than it does 
to have intercourse. Yeah. So that's the working theory. And it seems to play out in action because they will be like rubbing up against each other and screeching with pleasure um, for sometimes hours a day. So what, so to answer your question, uh, to make a long story short, um, you know, this is something about human female sexuality, the evolutionary script of it that we haven't really dealt with. We've wanted to deal with chimps and how violent they are and how the males coerce the females and commit infanticide and um, sexually coerce them. That's a story we love to tell about human beings and the evolutionary script of human sexuality. Why are we ignoring this other equally important story? Because it makes us uncomfortable. Hmm. Because matriarchy is a scary idea and because it upends everything that science has told us about who men and women are. But wait, what was the question? I didn't answer your question. So the question was, what did they create? Like, what did the organizers do mm. that liberated that right. kind of freedom, they, that kind they, of assertion? They created the possibility of what Dr. Amy Parrish would call a bonobo sisterhood. Mm. They took danger out of the equation, right? They took um, the idea that you would pay a very high price for pursuing pleasure out of the equation. Um, they created an environment where there was no ideological constraint, right? Nobody was saying women having sex with women is unnatural or weird. Um, and they brought like-minded women together and they took men out of the equation. So I think that what Genevieve Lejeune, who founded Skirt Club, has done repeatedly is she has created a sort of bonobo-esque ecology mm. uh, in which um, sexuality is happening out in the open. If anybody does anything bad, other people are there to intervene. Um, the likelihood of sexual coercion is very low. And um, the ideological price that you would worry about having to pay is very low also let's face it as one of the women at skirt club said to me what i like about coming here is i go to a bar i'm not sure if a woman's going to be mad if i hit on her and i'm not sure what she wants maybe she just wants to be at the bar at skirt club everybody's there because they want to have sex unless they're me and they want to study people having sex <laughs> um but you know at skirt club everybody's there for the same reason so that's what she did she created an ecology where it is not dangerous for the female libido to be itself unfortunately what we know is that given rates of sexual assault and coercion men are not villains but and we know that most men are not villains but we know that women in the real world in the united states um face a lot of um really sort of discouraging if you would have it obstacles for example in the united states um a lot of women would face could die right for committing infidelity mm. i mean you could be a woman in New York City or an enlightened metropole where progressive ideas have taken root and you could maybe say to your male partner, you know what, I kind of, let's have this conversation about like how monogamy is serving us and whether we want to see other people. Or you could be a woman who lives in an, un, even in New York, even in this same area, you could be a woman who lives in a community in a place where there would be very few um reasons for a man to not beat you up for asking that and a man might even shoot you and kill you 
um, for deciding that you wanted to be sexually autonomous. So Genevieve has created an ecology where there's no downside to pursuing your sexual autonomy. There's no downside to acting on your assertive, agentic, adventurous, sexual impulses, deeply evolved um, ways of being. Like I said, female sexuality will morph depending on the container. Ecology is everything when it comes to female sexuality. It's powerful. It's like one of the things that um, we oftentimes do with our men on our retreats at, at the Junto is the idea of, of deconstructing masculinity through like what are the stories that we have told ourselves about like who we needed to be, like what was the mold uh, that we needed to fit and what did we sacrifice of ourselves? And it's uh, like the idea yeah. to express something that was going to be celebrated, that was attractive you know, from our own perspective to right. a partner and what of who we really know ourselves to be, did we sacrifice? And I, and I think again of like what I love about your work is that it's when we become aware of these new narratives, we can become more aware of the stories that are kind of running our lives and our actions in ways that yeah. aren't conducive, not only with our own pleasure, but for that of our partner as well. And like, just our identity, who we are, right? Like the stories that run our lives. I love that um, formulation. And one of the stories that's been running our lives is that men are just inherently more sexual and women are inherently less sexual and monogamy is easier for women and it's harder than men. That is a story that has been running our lives for at least a couple of centuries now. In my book, I talk about how that ideology is 12,000 years old, mm. which to anthropologists is like the blink of an eye, this new sort of um, BS belief that men are more sexual than women and women are more monogamous than men. But those are stories that have been running our lives. And they haven't just been injuring women, to your point. They've been injuring men a lot. Yeah. And so when you think about, you know, a lot of the, it's a pretty, pretty even split with our audience, but because we work with a lot of men, what is it that you wish any men who are listening would ask their partners as it becomes to uncovering these kinds of narratives or empowering women to just ask for what it is that they really want to express themselves. What is it you wish uh, these guys would express to their partners? What message would you have? You know, for I don't even know that I have a message for them of what to express to their partners. I would just say, have an open mind about the data. Yeah. Have an open mind about this mind-blowing concept that monogamy is, in the aggregate, harder on the female libido than it is on the male libido. Hmm. And have an open mind that your wife or your female partner isn't who you've been taught she is. And then have conversation about it. And don't expect that she's going to feel she's going to dare to tell you right away because conditioning is a bitch. Hmm. And it goes really, really deep. I mean, I think my husband probably had to ask me 300 times, what do you want before I told him? So just keep at it. Keep at it. Keep at it and make the conditions really safe. Yeah. And blame me. Just say, <laughs> I heard this woman give this interview about women in monogamy. It's all back to this. Blame blame me. You're, you're <laughs> back in the spot. Let I'll me be your bad object, but just... <laughs> Spare me your mean DMs. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for being the bad object and sparking these types of conversations. Um, so for You're people welcome. that want to go deeper here, that want to open themselves up to the data, where can they find 
your latest work and anything you're working on at the moment? I post a lot of stuff about female sexuality and male sexuality on my Instagram, which yeah. is at Wednesday Martin PhD. On Twitter, I'm at Wednesday Martin. And my book is untrue. Why nearly everything we believe about women, lust and infidelity is wrong and how the new science can set us free. Oh. And, and whoa, new, new research on Twitter and my Instagram all the time. And of course, you got to subscribe to her incredible podcast. With, we didn't even talk about true sex and with wild love. With Whitney Miller with his true sex and wild love, which is amazing. And she had Mickey and I on and they're an amazing tag team. So definitely check that out. We will include everything into the show notes so that you can keep up with her. But thank you so much for the time. And Jack was very well behaved. This whole t- Zach, Zach is a very well behaved cat. He's just um, very. He's a very chill male. Nailed it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew, for having me on. Bye Thanks Wednesday. to your listeners. Signing off.